Father, we come to you today thanking you for life. Thank you that, that you have given us the breath that we breathe. You have given us the steps that we take day by day. It's a gift from you. And we're here today just to say thank you and to give our worship back to you for you being so gracious to us. Thank you that you have promised us that if, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, today I pray, beginning with me and throughout this congregation, I pray, God, that our attitude will be one of prayerful thanksgiving to you for who you are, for what you've done for us. And God, we want to truly worship you today. And so, as your people, we, we humble ourselves and we pray and we seek your face. And God, we want to turn from our wicked ways. We want to walk with you in holiness. And I thank you for your scripture that guides us there today. All that we are, all that we have, all that we ever will be, God, we want to give to you. In Jesus' name, we continue to worship now. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bible with me and open your Bible to Ezra, chapter 10. Ezra, chapter 10. If you were around my end of the beach last week, um, you would have seen a great deal of congestion. Traffic was very heavy. Um, in fact, it was uh, unusually health, uh, uh, heavy because uh, it was the old car show. And in the area where the old Merle Square Mall used to be, there were hundreds, it seemed like thousands of cars, and all weekend they went up and down the road uh, making noise and having fun. And it was a, it was a, it was a beautiful sight. Uh, restoration is a wonderful process. It's a process of taking something that uh, is old and putting it back into the condition that it was in when it was brand new. In fact, some of these old cars that showed up in our town last week uh, even looked better and worked better than they did when they were brand new, when they were original. Uh, that's a part of the process of being restored. By definition, restoration is the action of returning something to a former owner or a former place or a former condition. We all have seen things and experienced things that have been restored. And over the past uh, three months, our church has been working our way on Sunday mornings through the book of uh, Ezra. And we have come to understand that God wants us as human beings to return to a place in our life where the highest value in our life is our relationship with God. And that's where Ezra chapter 10 takes us. It takes us back to reminding us that even though we may have been broken, even though we may have rebelled against God, we can always allow God's Spirit to turn us around and make us new, as well as restore us. And so in Ezra chapter 9, we saw where Ezra had come to understand that Israel's relationship with God had been broken because of sin. 
And in Ezra chapter 9 last week, in chapter in verse 3, uh, we saw where Ezra tore his clothes, which was a sign of his disgust at the sin of Israel. And he was remorseful about the sin of Israel. We saw where he did a painful thing. He tore his hair out. He tore some of his beard out, which was a sign of the pain that sin against God causes God. And symbolically, he was expressing to the people of his day and even to his own spirit that sin is painful, sin is serious, and sin must be dealt with to restore us in our relationship with God. And so we saw in chapter 9 where Ezra fasted and prayed over the sins of this rebellion against God, and he was determined. He was determined to do whatever it took, whatever was necessary to see Israel restored in their relationship with God and in their love for God. So Ezra in chapter 10 then turns and gives us an example worthy of following. He gives us four building blocks to restored holiness. So let's just look briefly this morning at these four building blocks and then we're going to apply them to our life as we take the opportunity to enter into communion with God, into oneness with the Spirit of God. So let's look at these four building blocks. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, we see that restored holiness requires sorrowful confession. In verse 1, when this assembly of men, women, children joined Ezra in his prayers, confessions, weeping, and humble position before God, they admitted they had broken faith with God and they expressed great sorrow over these specific sins. Look at verse 2 because it tells us why they were sorry. Leaders addressed Ezra and said, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And so right out of the chute, right off the bat, they expressed sorrowful confession. Their desire for holiness before God led them to this place of being sorry, this sorrowful confession. Their desire was to purify their lives. Their desire was to purify a nation which had been chosen to represent God in this world. And they had a resolve. Look at their resolve in verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So we need to understand this. Sorrowful confession is the beginning of repentance. It's the beginning of change. It's not the end result. It's not all there is to it. But until we are broken over our sin, as these people were broken, until we realize the seriousness of sin and how it separates us from God, and we're sorry about that, we're broken about that, 
We can't come to a place of repentance and turning around. So the first step is sorrowful confession. These sons and daughters of Israel, we see in verse 4, called Ezra into action. Look, they said, Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So verse 5, Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan and the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Wow. Do you feel the depth of the sorrow that Ezra had? that the leaders of Israel had about their sin. It moves my heart to wonder how long it's been since I took that position. Since I was truly broken and sorry for the sin that I've committed against God. I mean, I can't read this passage without realizing that the foreign influence of Babylonia and other surrounding nations, these worldly influences had just trickled into the life of God's people until there was no difference between God's people and the people of these other nations. And it broke Ezra's it brought him to sorrow. Oh, today, how, how I would pray that that would be the position of my heart and my life. That I would feel the, the depth of the sin that has trickled into my life and our nation. And that kind of sorrow would be part of the response that I have to my sin and to the sin of our country. Arthur Bennett was a 20th century British Christian leader. He spent most of his life digging into Puritan culture and Puritan writings. And he wrote one of my favorite devotional books entitled The The Valley of Vision based purely on a collection of Puritan prayers. It's a call to godly confession. Let me just give you a little example, a little taste of some of the pages of this devotional guide. He says, God, you are good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind but my heart is slow to feel and my ways reluctant to change when's the last time you and I were that honest before God professing the fact that we've sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
He goes on, he says, all sins I mourn, I lament, and for them I cry pardon. Work in me profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance, I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of thy saving cross. Again, do you, do you feel the weight of his heart when he prayed this prayer, the writer of whoever wrote this? I, I want that to be the spirit that I have with reflection on the sin that I have in my life and the reflection that we have corporately of the sins of, of our country. You know, many times people feel sorry and confess sin just to feel better because they want to feel better. But then they go right back to their old ways and they never change. That is not sorrowful repentance. That's not what Ezra was feeling. That's not what we're talking about here. The, the great news about this sorrowful repentance is that, that sorrowful repentance fuels an interchange that starts on the inside. It starts on my heart, my attitude. It, it leads to new habits. It leads to necessary change that is lasting, that is real. So the first building block is sorrowful confession. The second building block that Ezra points out in verses 7 through 15 Restored holiness requires personal conviction. Not only am I sorry about my sin, but I'm convicted about my sin. Verse 7 says, And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem and all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So the sin that was being confessed here was a corporate sin. The nation had sinned, but the conviction was personal. It was personal. Now, by way of application, when I look at our country today, our nation today, are there corporate sins rampant in our nation today? I mean, even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, how could you look at what's going on in our world and not admit that there's rampant sin going on in our world? But going deeper, how much personal ownership do you and I feel about the corporate sin of our country? The sons and daughters of Israel were convicted. And conviction is good because it points out that the sins of the nation come from the sins of individuals. And when individuals rebel against God and turn against God's law it breaks out into a corporate kind of sin. These people made daily 
sacrifices in, uh, in the morning and in the evening. They sacrificed because of sins that they had in their life. But this particular sin at this time was different. I mean, it called out the whole nation to come together and to take action against it. Verse 10, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and increased the guilt of Israel. See, they were already guilty of sin. That's why they made morning and evening sacrifices. But this particular sin increased the guilt of Israel. He said, Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from foreign wives. And all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. So the guilt of breaking faith with God was exposed. And this specific heavy guilt brought conviction to the hearts and lives of people, God's people. Oh, how I would pray that revival would break out in our country. Maybe even start here at Palmetto Shores. When we are personally convicted about our sin and about the sin of our country. Conviction is a great gift of God. It's not something to be sad about. Conviction simply means that God is pointing out in our lives something that's separating us from Him. And I don't know about you, but I want to know what's separating me from God so I can deal with it. Conviction is good. Sometimes I, I need others to point out guilt in my life. And that's why, you know, I love a church that is willing to be open and honest and loving in the type of community where people are willing to speak into the lives of other believers and point out areas where we need to pray about sin in my life, in our life. It's easier for me to see sin in your life than it is in my life. And so when I see it in your life, like these leaders did, I want to be willing to point that out, and I want you to be free and willing to point it out in my life as well. David said, when the prophet Daniel, uh, uh, Nathan pointed out the sin in his life, David, David fell on his face before God under the weight of his conviction. He had sinned against God, and Nathan pointed it out, and he fell on his face in sorrow, and admission, repentance. In his book entitled The Gospel for Real Life, Jerry Bridges reminds us that in an old soap commercial, the company advertised their soap to be 99.4% pure. I don't know what that means, 99% pure soap. But I know this, it was 0.6% less than being 100% pure. If my life was 99.4% pure, which is not. But if it was, I would still fall short of the glory of God, of the righteousness of God. 
I would still have a breach in my relationship with God. And so I want to be convicted of my sin so that I can be pure and holy in the eyes of God. And let me explain for a minute how that works because I can never work myself to God, my way to God, and be 100% righteous as, as He is righteous. That's why God came to earth as a man. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And God was born a human being, born of a virgin, lived a full life, 33 or so years, and he was 100% free from sin. He was 100% pure. He's the only person that's ever been 100% pure. That's why he qualifies. When he went to the cross and died for my sin and for your sin, his precious blood qualifies to pay the full price for the guilt of your sin. And when you put your faith and trust in Him, because He was 100% pure, and because you and I are not 100% pure, when we put our faith and trust in Him, God looks at you and me and sees 100% purity. Because He has exchanged my sin and your sin for the 100% purity of Jesus. Now, I can't fully explain to you how that works or why God would want to love you and me that much, but I know this, He did. And He sacrificed His life, His 100% pure life, to pay the price for your sinful life and my sinful life. So today, you stand before God in one of two positions. You're either standing before God on your own merit, which can never measure up to the righteousness of God, or you're standing on the merit of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, and when God looks at you, He sees 100% pure in you. When you give your life to Jesus by faith, and you pray a prayer like this, you say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin. And God, today, I believe that Jesus shed his blood to pay the price for the penalty of my sin. And God, today, by faith, I believe in Jesus and trust Jesus to set me free from the penalty of my sin. And I commit the rest of my life, God, to living for you. I commit the rest of my life to allowing you to live in me. When we pray a prayer like that, that's called justification. We are justified. In fact, God looks at us, at us just as if we had never sinned when we trust Him in that way. But then there's another side. After we have been justified... We don't stop sinning. I wish we did, and I pray that we will. But as we continue to sin, then Jesus continues by 
our faith in Him to forgive us of our sin even after we become a believer. And that's called the process of sanctification. God is making us more and more and more like Jesus so we can represent Him more and more and more in this world that we live. And conviction plays a part in both of these processes. Conviction leads me to want to be justified and conviction leads me to daily want to be sanctified, to walk with the Lord in holiness. We see the third building block to restored holiness. After these people confessed their sins and were convicted of their sins, number three, restored holiness requires a contrite heart. A contrite heart. We see in verses 16 and 17 that they followed through with their action. Verse 16 says, Then they were... Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name on the first day of the tenth month that sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So contrition is the state of feeling remorseful, for feeling penitent, for feeling sorry. But it's more than that. It's taking action. It's doing something about the remorse and the sorrow that I feel. It's returning to the holy state of being in unity with God and being in relationship with God. And so it's more than being sorry, but it starts by being sorry. But sorrow must be followed by action. Corrected behavior is a result of someone who takes sorrowful action, repentant action, penitent action to confess our sin before God as believers. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, David said to obey is better than to sacrifice. Obedience is talking about action. So Ezra and these other priests immediately went into action. They, they selected the heads of the families who immediately also went into action. For three or four months, they went house to house, person to person, to purify the nation of Israel from this particular sin of having foreign wives who also had children and filtered into Israel. House to house. You think this was an easy thing to do? It was a very painful thing to do. And I have to ask myself the question as I come to this part of the passage. And now, trust me, I don't understand everything about the details that went on behind this process here. I don't even understand everything about the heart of God when it comes to this particular passage of Scripture. But here's what I do understand. I understand that this passage calls me to look into my heart and do some investigating in my heart. What are some things that God is calling me and maybe what are some things that God is calling you to put away in order, number one, to have a right relationship with Him, 
as a believer. But number two, to reflect to the people in my family and the people around me in my neighborhood and in my world what it looks like to know God and to be fully devoted to Him. What is God calling you and me to put away? Let me just think about some things with you. What action He may be calling us to to take today to put ourselves in right relationship with Him. It might be a habit that we have. Would you be willing to pray and ask, God, is there any habit in my life that I need to put away? Now again, this is not to be saved. This is not to be justified in the eyes of God. This is to be sanctified, to be usable by God, to represent Him and reflect Him in this world. It might be a lifestyle. Are you willing to pray with me, God, what what blinders do I need to put away in my life that are keeping me from being a good example and a witness to my family and to my neighbors around me? Might be a painful action that I need to take. God might be calling me like the heads of these households to look at my family and evaluate my family, assess in my family in a loving way things that might be a barrier between their witness before God and before their neighbors and for God calling them out to put away ungodly lifestyles, ungodly influences, ungodly habits, and so forth. God calls His people to holiness, and that call to holiness is a high standard. In fact, it's the the highest standard. And although you and I can't do it on our own merit, it takes faith in Jesus and faith in the grace and mercy of God for us to be able to live a lifestyle that is a good representative of Him to people around us. But that is exactly what God is calling us to be. That's what He's calling us to do. God paid the highest price not to condemn you, but to condemn your sin. And as I said earlier in the prayer, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if I confess my sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive me of my sin and will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I pray that that's the attitude of your heart as well. Let me just point out some things in Scripture, in the New Testament. There are things that we need to put away in our life. And I'm going to just read this quickly. And you listen and see if God makes application to your life about any of this. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, And things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Anything in that list that you might need to put away in order to live righteously with God and before God. Flip over a couple of pages to Colossians chapter 2. Excuse me, Colossians chapter 3. Let me just begin reading with verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And on and on I could go. The point is, if we want to live righteously before God, we have to take contrite action. Put off the things that are keeping us from looking like God. And by God's grace and with the help of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, put on the things that look like God and that represent Him accurately in this world. So restored holiness requires contrite action. And then as we wrap it up this morning, fourthly, the fourth building block, Restored holiness requires complete repentance. Complete repentance. Repentance means you're walking in one direction, the ways of the world. You're convicted by God. You're sorry for your sin. You turn around and you begin to walk toward God. That's what repentance means. And so restored holiness requires not partial repentance, but complete repentance. Not just being sorry for my sin, but being willing to put my sin behind me and turn away and walk with God. In verses 18 through 44, you heard it read this morning. The names of the men who were required to put away their wives and children because they had married foreign wives. They had violated the law of God. The worship leaders, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers. In verses 18 to 24, there were 23 of these spiritual leaders who were called out and named. And then in the rest of the chapter, there were 84 more sons of Israel who had married foreign wives. That means that 107 leaders and sons of Israel had compromised the holiness of God for thousands and thousands and thousands of the members of the nation of Israel. God's judgment fell on the entire nation because of the sin of the minority. Now again, I've said that there are many things about this passage that I don't fully understand, but I know this. This I do understand. When God calls me to a particular area of holiness, it doesn't matter what the world thinks about what God calls me to. I'm responsible to God, and I have to follow exactly what He tells me to do. 
The same is true for you. Putting away these wives and children was a tough, hard decision. It had to be done in order to purify the nation. For Israel to be a holy nation before a a holy God. And it just reminds me that the consequences of sin continue even after I'm forgiven. The highest priority in my life has to be my relationship with God. Now, I don't know about you, but this passage sobers me. It it speaks to my heart. By way of application, there are two things I want to ask you to do with me. Realize that being daily restored to holiness is a high standard. It's a high standard. It can only be achieved by faith in Jesus, by putting your life in the hand of Jesus and letting Him lead and guide your life. You acknowledge that you are thankful for what Jesus has done for you. In a few minutes, we're going to share communion. And that's what communion says. It says, Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth and living a perfect life and dying, sacrificing your life for my sin. But it also calls me to make all of life about Jesus, to put him in the highest position, the highest place of priority in my life. And then secondly, it's never too late, never too late to be restored to holiness. I pray that today would be the day when you feel God calling you. If you've never repented of your sin and given your life to Jesus, Why don't you do that today? If His Holy Spirit is calling you, let Him justify you today and make you whole today. You can do that by simply praying that prayer. God, um, I don't understand everything there is to know about you, but I know that in my heart I want the rest of my life to be lived for you. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. And today I trust you to be my Savior and my Lord. For those of us who have already made that commitment of our life to Him, I pray that the constant prayer of our heart will be to be set apart daily, sanctified, used for God's glory. In a few minutes, we're going to share together in communion. I'd like to invite you to take your communion set uh, and go ahead and just pull the tab off where the bread is. And hold it in your hand. And ask the worship team to come forward. And we're going to listen to the song that the worship team leads us. You may want to sing the lyrics. If, if God's Spirit is calling you to His altar today to meet with Him, to confess sin or to profess faith in Him as your personal Lord and Savior, Go ahead and make that commitment during this time. And then after we finish singing, I'm going to pray again. And then we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. We're going to receive communion together. So, God, I pray that in the next few minutes, as we consciously continue in your presence, 
God, how I pray that you will call us to a place of humble sorrow and confession and absolute repentance turning our whole life over to you. Work in our life in the next few minutes as we listen and sing the lyrics of this song. In Jesus' name.